It's February 15th, 2010, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Before we begin, I want to share something with you. As some of you may already know, I teach a course called Working Photographer 2 at the Art Center College of Design. This is a course which this term includes six young men and women who will soon be graduating from full-time students to working photographers. For this term, each has created a blog in which they'll be discussing their work and their journey to become full-time professional photographers. They are a group of talented students, and I thought it would be interesting to you to have a glimpse into their work and thoughts during this early time in their careers. I'll be providing links to each of their blogs on this episode entry, which you'll find on the CandidFrame.com blog. If you like what you see and read, let them know. And even better, pass the word along, especially if you're using Twitter, Facebook, or Buzz. Today's guest is David Dushman, a travel and humanitarian photographer who, in my opinion, wrote one of the best instructional books on photography last year, Within the Frame. His book goes beyond the what-button-do-I-push style photo book that there are way too many of. David created a book that really speaks to people with a passion for seeing and for using the camera to capture that vision. As well as being a talented photographer, he's also an inspiration for those out there who dream of making a major shift of career as he left a successful career as a stand-up comic to become a professional photographer. That's quite a change, but he's quite a photographer and a writer. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with David Dushman. Well, David, welcome to The Candid Frame. I want to start off with an idea that you talk about a lot in your book, and that is um, the idea of vision. Why don't you tell uh, us what you mean and what you think vision is (laughs) starting with the tough ones uh vision you know i've I've had a a lot of time to think about this because i get so many people asking for clarification on it and in some ways it's a little tough to explain because for different people i think vision comes from different places but uh it's very much i think like a visual opinion if you look at a, a stand-up comedian, which is uh, part of my background, um, different comics uh, have different styles and they talk about different things. But all of those things generally come from a place of opinion. It's, it's someone's unique perspective on the world. It's the things that, that annoy them. The things that uh, that get them excited, in the case of a photographer, is the things that you find beautiful or that you find um, harmonious or the things, in the case of perhaps someone that's more documentary, um, it might be the things that rub you the wrong way about this world. Um, so it's that place of, of opinion, the things that you say, and then it's kind of wrapped in, in your own visual unique aesthetic. You know, we all have sort of a different place we come from aesthetically as well, so I think it's a package. You talk about sort of discovering that vision about what drives what drives you, what are you drawn to. And I think it's one of the things that people kind of struggle at first, particularly as photographers, because they, they find themselves making photographs of things, but they don't really oftentimes make that connection that what's really drawing them is something that's really rooted internally, 
something that they're excited about or angry about or, or, or whatever. How do photographers, particularly when they're first starting, sort of make that connection? I, you know, I think it's a process of discovery, and I don't, I don't think it ever comes to the point where you just wake up one morning, you've, quote, discovered your vision, and then you're done for the day. I think uh, as long as you're a photographer, you as a person change. So I think the discovery of, of your vision is an ongoing thing, um, especially if it's my And so you're meeting new people, you're seeing new places, and you have fresh opportunities to interact with those people and places and to discover your vision afresh every time you, you know, every time you travel or, or go out. So I think it's really important that we understand that this is a, a journey of discovery, uh, and it's, it's very much unique to ourselves. So you go out and and you begin to look at the things that draw you. It's It's no more complicated than just being conscious of what are the things I'm really attracted to shooting? What turns my eye? What quickens my heart? What makes me go, hey, I want to, you know, hey, I should shoot that. And I'm notorious for seeing something while, I, while I'm wandering around a city somewhere and going, oh, I should really photograph that. And uh, the correct response is not, I should photograph that. The correct response is picking up your camera and shooting it. And I'm usually I'm a little too late on that. Um, you know, meanwhile, someone I'm traveling with has turned around and gone and shot it. But uh, yeah, I think being conscious of it, it took me to figure out what I loved shooting and one day I was looking through my work and I had traveled to Haiti and really really connected with that particular assignment and loved it and I came back and I looked at all my work that I'd done in 20 years and realized you know all of this stuff has common threads it's uh, it's children it's culture it's international travel a lot of it was stories about people even just kind of a one frame story and I, I realized that I had always been shooting, you know, as part of my vision, but suddenly being aware of that vision means you can go out and pursue it in a much more intentional fashion. You can express yourself when you know more consciously what it is you're trying to express. You can express yourself more uh, intentionally and more compellingly. And that, that whole idea that you just mentioned about going back and looking over your own body of work to discover what that that vision is, I think is really important because I I think to to a great extent it's very subconscious and it's only when you start taking a look at your work that you realize what you've been responding to, what you're reacting to in terms of what you're turning the camera to. I suspect so. I don't know that that's uh, you know that that's always the case. I think looking back at at your work does two things, as you said. It you know it, um, it does make you more conscious of that unconscious thing that you've been expressing. The other thing it does, I think, is it prevents you from repeating yourself. You know, it's um, it's it's good to repeat yourself in the sense that if you haven't yet quite expressed what you want to in an image, that you try until you get it right. But sometimes I think we're at risk of not well, of not taking risks. We don't step out of our shell. We shoot the stuff that's repeated, and so. Looking back at past work, I think, is, is good in a number of ways, yeah. One of the things I encounter a lot with particularly um, students who are studying photography, they're always obsessed on developing a style. But how do you differentiate vision between style? I think style is the voice that you give to your vision. I think it's that unique way that you express yourself and I, I I have the same thing I have people asking me about style all the time and how did you develop your style and I think it's a little putting the cart before the horse in the sense that a style is something that comes out of you doing what you do in the unique way that you do it and you may intentionally pursue this or pursue that but I don't think you wake up one day and say I'm going to develop a style 
um, any more than you say, I'm going to develop a vision. The vision is something that's unique to you. And I think the voice by which you express it is also unique to you. Uh, for me to wake up and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to shoot uh, portraits just like Yusuf Karsh did. Um, and I'm going to make that my style. Well, that's, that's not me. That's me trying to be Karsh instead of me trying to be me. So I think it's good to, to recognize that we all need to express ourselves in unique ways, but to set out to develop a style, I'm not sure is as important as setting out just simply to express yourself in the unique ways that you need to do that. That may take a long time, um, but I don't know any photographer that's ever set out just simply to create their own style and then feel the need to be bound by that. Yeah. I think one of the complicated things about photography is because we're so de- you know dependent on this mechanical, electrical, mechanical device Sometimes we can struggle on on trying to understand whether our vision is sort of a valid one, and that conflicted with our technical proficiency to be able to express that vision. And sometimes, if technically you're you, you know you're not working out, you can sometimes question whether or not your your vision is a valid one. So how do you kind of sort of strike that balance? Because I think it's a big struggle for for everyone, and it makes them very insecure about about their own vision. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a it is a challenge, and I think that's one of the neat things about photography is that we kind of collaborate with this black box that we carry around. And um, I think what's frustrating for many people is that our vision. I mean, this black box we shoot with is it's awfully limited, and um, you know it, it doesn't respond the way we would like it all the time. And there are technical issues that are, are sometimes we're limited by and constraints that that kind of prevent us from expressing our vision the way we'd like to. But our vision always, I think, outpaces our ability to capture it. I think, you know, our vision is quite limitless in many ways, whereas the box we carry around with which we express that vision is uh, is very limited. So I think there's a frustration of whether whether a vision is valid or not. I think I think everyone's vision is valid. I think it's a question of whether they're expressing that vision with authenticity and honesty uh, is probably more, I, th- I think, would be the way I would look at it. In looking at your work, you do a lot of work internationally. And, and I'm sure that you've gotten this comment before where people look at your work and go, wow, if I were traveling to those locations i'd be able to make fantastic photographs as well but you make the point that in your book that just because you're in an exotic location making photographs doesn't make necessarily make those things good photographs so how do people find ways of making images that really resonate in 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 the way many of your images do if they're not leaving uh, their own hometown for example well, I, I think it's a good point. I think that um, the, that a photograph, for example, you know, an exotic photograph of a man in a turban, and I think it was, I think I heard an interview with Steve McCurry at one point, and he said, you know, just because you photographed a guy in a, in a turban doesn't make it a good photograph. And uh, I think the reason we're, we, to us, it's exotic, and we go, oh, look, guy in a turban, and we take the photograph, and in the end, that's all our photograph is saying is, look, guy in a turban, um, and as the world shrinks, frankly, we've all seen a guy in a turban, and we've seen a lot of this exotic kind of stuff, so I think even in taking a photograph of a guy in a turban or the guy around the corner, you need to capture something that's a little more deeply human, uh, whether it's a simple emotion, whether it's an exchange of some. McCurry would say, you know, you get these moments that are unguarded where after a bit that, you know, they forget the camera's there and the, the soul comes into view. I think those those human moments or um, as 
Jay Mizell talks about, you know, the gesture in a photograph, catching a moment that's a little, that's uh, indicative of something more than just, you're saying something, I talked about this in the book too, you're saying something about what you're photographing. You're not just pointing to it and going, look, guy in a turban. You know, you're, you're actually revealing something, even if it's a simple emotion or an exchange. So I think that's the first thing in answering your question. You, you need to look beyond just simply uh, the exotic and create images that will appeal to a, a greater audience of people. And you do that by accessing the more basic human uh, emotions and moments and things that kind of ring true. I think one a good example of that is that image that you have that you shot in India of the Taj Mahal. You have it, uh, the Taj Mahal framed within sort of an archway. It's a perspective I've seen before, but it was just the inclusion of that man who was sweeping the ground that all of a sudden helps sort of complete the image. And I think it's it speaks to that idea of not only photographing sort of an iconic location in a very personal way, but also about just patience and waiting. I think one of the big issues for photographers is that they're in such a rush. And oftentimes you may have all the elements for a good photograph except maybe just one. And then sort of waiting it out and allowing for things to happen becomes an important part not only of making a good photograph, but really expressing that that personal vision. Absolutely. I think two of the most overlooked photographic skills are curiosity and patience, I think. Um, And it's funny you mentioned that photograph because I was the most impatient person that day. Uh, And and it wasn't until I settled down. I we got off a train and we were running for the Taj Mahal. We were hoping to get sunrise, and and we got there. And then there was security, and I was getting impatient and I frustrated. And it wasn't until I kind of got there and went, "Ugh, this is it!" Like it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't at all what I expected. And I don't know what I expected. And expectations play a big role in what we photograph and what we you know, what we don't photograph, what gets in our way. But it wasn't until I sort of, I got so frustrated that I sat down in this, I shot that in the mosque that's adjacent to uh, to the Taj. And I sat down and, and just kind of sat there and waited. And, I, and if you find a great background, just sit there and wait for the foreground to, to show up. And so I just sat there and I thought, you know, if nothing's going to happen, I'll just have an excuse. I'll just sit here. I was being kind of self-indulgent. And then this guy came along, just, you know, he just kind of appeared and we had a little bit of a, a friendly battle because every time I raised the camera, he tried to get out of the way because he was being very polite and I was trying to communicate that, no, it was fine. I wanted him in the photograph and he uh, he finally understood and we had a wonderful time. <laughs> it was, uh, y- yeah, you're right. Patience is very important and uh, sometimes it takes a little bit of um, forcing yourself to sit somewhere and wait and find find a moment that's a little better than settling for just a great background. Yeah, you have several examples of that in your on your on your website, particularly in Tunisia. I see you responding very much to the saturated colors that exist, particularly in doorways and entryways. But in several of those images, you don't just allow the the image of the door to be the sole focal point. You oftentimes are work, waiting for a figure to walk by, uh, to move within the frame. Sometimes they're sharp, sometimes they're blurred, but somehow the juxtaposition of those people helps to complete the shot, not only in terms of just having a presence there, but oftentimes in terms of the relationships between colors, that you're not just waiting for just an object there just to have it there. It's somehow meant to sort of complement shape, 
color, form, all of those things. And how 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 difficult can that be sometimes? Not only because you you have to wait there, but in terms of recognizing that this element, that person that's walking in there, is really going to help shape this image. I think there's a lot of serendipity involved. I think you know you put the camera on a on a tripod and, or you lean against a wall and you wait, and uh, you know what you see is the shot that that turned out. What you don't see is you know the images I took of 20 other people that are walking by that are total garbage. Um, and so you know you stand there and you experiment and you play, and the first 10 go by and you realize okay the shutter is too fast or too slow. And what I really want is you know some guy in a red a red fez to go by because it's a blue door. So it's it's trial and error and it's experimentation and it's getting you know 19 crappy images that kind of grease the wheel to get that 20th decent one um so there's a sense i think in which you're conscious of the process but another sense in which you're just playing i think play uh like curiosity and patience is a, is a little underrated in the sense that we get very serious about what we do rather than kind of going out and just saying hey what if what if i tried this and what if i tried that and so I'd love to take the credit for it, but for the most part, it's me just kind of, it's a result of me being bored and thinking, I'm going to try something different. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Tell me about the shot you have. You have a shot in of a man in a red fez sitting in a sort of a plastic chair against um, some sort of structure that has blue in it. There's a guy in the left-hand side coming in the frame lighting a lighting a cigarette. And when I look at that, I go, there's about half a dozen shots in there, including mm. one where you're just focusing on the guy in the red fez with the background and you've eliminated everything else. Tell me about coming upon this shot and how you worked it, because I suspect that this is probably not the only approach that you made for this particular scene. Uh, it's not. And I'm going to be honest, that was that was shot fairly early on in my trip to Tunisia, which was one of the most initially frustrating trips I've ever taken with my camera. Uh, North African uh, culture can be quite resistant to being photographed. Even if you're in a bit of a relationship with people, it takes quite a while to to get to the point where they will permit you to take photographs. So I uh, the low-hanging fruit for me was just great-looking buildings and wide shots where I could pretend I was shooting something else and get some candid elements in there as well. So that was just outside my hotel, and I loved the building and and the colors. And, and it was just one of these, you know, I, I probably squeezed off five frames of different kind of candid going as wide as I could uh, because the moment you zeroed in on someone, they kind of gave you the evil eye and wagged their finger and, you know, covered their face or something. But I, there was such candid, the nice thing about North Africa is, is that you have these, this culture of people sitting around drinking tea or smoking their, their uh, hookah pipe. And, and so there's a lot of, there's these moments that are just incredibly candid that I very much wanted to capture at the same time, I didn't want to be very intrusive. And so that was one of those few ones that I was just simply experimenting with a technique. I thought, Hey, if I go really, really wide and point the camera at the building, I can still get some candid elements. So I used to spend a lot of time waiting for people to leave my photograph and uh, kind of muttering under my breath, get out of my shot. Come on, hurry up, hurry up. And now I spend time doing the exact opposite, waiting for people to come into the shot. So, you know, the guy coming in with the cigarette was, was one of those things where I just, it's, I think when you have those moments where you have a guy that's, yeah, maybe he's not quite in focus, but he's at the edge of your frame. There's, 
I think more of a feeling of being there as a viewer when you're there, because we see life that way. We see things a little out of focus on the periphery and, and kind of half coming into our view. So it was just, it was, again, it was play. I, I didn't set out to create that image and, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I think one of the things you're very successful at is with your photographs is not showing, not merely showing what a place looks like, but what it feels like to, to be there. And some of it involves your, your photographs of people, but it's also your photographs of small details that, that people oftentimes don't think about when they're, when they're traveling. When you're going to these locations, how important is it to, to include those very small little details in order to evoke that, that sense of, of actually being there? I think for me, it's it's very important. Um, but I, again, I don't think I set out ever to capture specifically any of those details. Uh, it's one of those things where and my friend Gavin Goff is very, uh, he says this sort of thing a lot, that you can't photograph an experience until you've actually had the experience. So uh, to go out with a shot list and be blinded by it is uh, is a bit of a hazard. You need to go out and experience it and stumble upon things and be sitting at a cafe and, you know, just catch something out of your corner of your eye and, and go, hey, you know, that, that would maybe would make a good photograph and start to play with it. And so a lot of what I do is very reactionary. I don't know that I ever really set out to capture the little details I keep an eye out for them because I think those details are as indicative of culture as a large sweeping street scene can be. Um, but again, I, I'm very reactionary. So I just, I see something that catches my eye and I catch it. And then later on, if I'm traveling with a, another photographer, I'll see something they've shot and think, man, I didn't even see that. And that was, you know, that was an elephant walking down the middle of the street. How did I miss that? And it just, I was blinded by that small detail for a minute. You know, we, we see different things at different times. And, um, but I to return to your question, I think it's really important uh, to at least see those details, whether it's the kind of thing you want to photograph or not is another, another thing, but to see them and react to them because those are, that's where culture exists as well as in these broad sweeping, you know, architecture and that sort of thing. They're also in the details. And you talk, you talk about a lot about out making the choice to wander, you know, to, to get lost purposely, um, to be open to, you know, the, the possibilities that, you know, aren't typically sort of regimented or like according, uh, like going by a, a shot list, but that can be very, scary for someone particularly where they're in a, a foreign environment what what are kind of the suggestions you that you make to your students in terms of taking advantage of of the process of, of wandering with your camera well i think that the reason i do it is very important uh i get lost in places like this and i wander very aimlessly because uh because of the issue of expectation, when I go to a, especially a well-touristed spot, you've seen all the photographs before, you've got maybe ideas about how you want to shoot, for example, the, the Eiffel Tower or the Taj Mahal. Uh, and those expectations, I think, prevent us from seeing things from a different perspective, even seeing different things uh, around those areas. And to get lost is kind of an, an acknowledgement that you're you're almost intentionally getting rid of those expectations and and going somewhere where you can't possibly have any expectations because you don't even know where you're going. Mm. Uh, and, and so as a result, I think that that for me has worked. 
to clear my palate a little bit, to to go off, and suddenly those expectations aren't there because I haven't, frankly, got a clue where I'm going. And uh, you'll always be nervous with it. You won't get rid of the the fear as long as it's not that fear of dear God, I'm going to die in this place, as long as it's more a nervousness. Sometimes that that uh, other fear, you should listen to it and not go to those places. But if it's just simply fear of the fear of the unknown and fear of the different, I think, I think we need to kind of go with it and let that kind of feeling open our eyes to new things. It's, it's getting lost. It's, um, as long as you know where your hotel is, you anywhere I travel to, you just get lost and then, you know, grab a taxi or a, uh, a rickshaw and hand them your business, the business card for the hotel and have them take, or go back to the biggest landmark you can find. Everyone in Paris knows where the Eiffel Tower is. So you'll never truly get, get lost, but you will discover things that for one, the other tourists haven't, and you didn't know you were looking for. And I think that brings uh, photographs that maybe have a potential of being a little more authentic and less contrived. Yeah. When talking about fear, one of the biggest fears people have is just approaching other people to photograph them. And uh, now that you mention um, your experience in, in Tunisia and you look at your later work, I can see how you've been able to get closer and closer and more intimate with people. What was your experience of being able to, to get past that self, self-imposed restriction of approaching people because of the fear you felt? Uh, well, I'll let you know when it happens because I'm still, <laughs> you know, I think everyone is under this misconception that you have to be extremely extroverted to uh, to do this kind of work. And I'm not at all. And no one that I know personally or, or intimately is extremely intro- or extroverted. They're simply curious and interested in people. And I'm terrified of approaching people. Every time I go back to India, I spent the first two days just shooting garbage, shooting wide shots, trying to get up the courage to go and photograph someone that I'd like to, because there's a bit of a wall there, and and it takes it takes quite a lot of uh, I don't know if courage is the right word, but you really have to kind of tighten your belt and take a big breath. And well, to go back to my my comedy background, it's like taking that final breath, putting yourself in a character, and walking on stage. You just have to. Before you can think any better of it, walk up to someone and smile and put out your hand and shake their hand and just engage them and see where it goes. Um, but there's no secret sauce to this one. It's uh, Every time I go, it's it's a little bit nerve-wracking. It helps if you have someone from the culture that can that can kind of give you some, some points and, and be a bit of a cultural insider. But ultimately, I think people are people, and for the most part, if you're friendly and respectful, uh, if you honor them and are not being exploitive, uh, they recognize that, and there can be some kind of exchange that you can that you can at some point photograph. But my counsel to people is to slow down. Don't don't come home expecting to have 300 great portraits from your you know your afternoon out uh, walking around Old Delhi. Go out being willing to sit down and have chai with someone to spend really spend some time. And yeah, you may only come back with one great photograph, but it will be a much more authentic photograph than uh, you know, 300 grab shots can possibly be. And the idea that you've gone from you know where you're standing in front of a stage of strangers talking and approaching people addresses two of the biggest fears that most people have. Period. So that's kind of interesting for me. But tell me about the transition of going from being a stand-up comedian to being a professional photographer, to many, that would seem like quite a leap. 
Yeah, yeah, it seems like quite a leap to me too. I, uh, you know, I, I've been a photographer for years and years and years, and uh, at one point wanted to do it vocationally, and then figured I'd probably it would probably suck my uh, my passion and my joy out. Uh, so, so I didn't, and so you know, I I went off and pursued other things, and eventually did a twelve year career in comedy, which, uh, looking back now, did a lot to teach me. Um, some really solid lessons that that have served me quite well. But I just, in terms of the transition, I just got I got bored. To be honest, I got to where I wanted to be, and I was uh, I was enjoying performing and and had done everything that I wanted to do with comedy, and was to be honest, feeling a little dissatisfied. And then an opportunity came to to go to Haiti, both as a comedian and a photographer, which is a, a whole story uh, to itself. And I went down there wearing these two hats, one as comic and one as a uh, photographer. And I probably took three or four frames and I realized this is, you know, I alluded to earlier that it took me 20 years to find my vision. That was the trip on which I, I truly found it. And I knew suddenly what I wanted to be photographing. And I came back and I told my wife, I said, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to get off the stage and go back to photography. And within a year, I stepped off the stage for the last time and had a high profile client that started sending me around the world and um which makes it sound like a very quick transition but there was a lot of intention behind it and a lot of paving the way to get there and you know 20 years of being a photographer beforehand so i I think a lot of people make these transitions but they uh there's a lot going on in the background that you know that you don't see Uh, but you know going from comedy to tragedy in a sense that a lot of the work that i do is with uh you know in developing countries with humanitarian organizations and uh, the skills that I've learned, I mean, we, what you see as a photograph of a, a little child smiling, um, it looks very serene. But in the background, there's, you know, 30 Maasai villagers all making fun of the white guy who can't, you know, can't speak Swahili right. And, you know, I'm wiggling my ass to make the kids smile and doing anything I can to interact with them without the benefit of language. And so there is the sense in which I've really gone from entertaining people from a stage to entertaining people behind the camera in order to kind of get some kind of authentic reaction out of them. And laughter is, um, it's only one of several very authentic human uh, expressions, but it is authentic. Laughter is a, it's a release of tension and it's, it's pretty universal. So getting people smiling and laughing is, I, I've learned how to do that in 12 years on the stage. And now it becomes a little easier when I'm behind a camera. Yeah. In your book, Vision Monger, you, you talk about the, the process of making a living from photography. But I think to a great extent, what people are really looking for is they just want to be able to live their lives more passionately, not realizing that much of your time ends up being running a business than it is actually being a photographer, uh, you know, rather than you know being a professional photographer. How do you think people can have that more passion experience in their lives with it with a camera without necessarily having to start up a business i i think the first step would be not starting a business at all um there's a book called the e-myth which uh i haven't actually read but one of the premises is that you know many people for example bakers they they love baking and they say hey i love baking so much i'm going to become a professional baker and what you know open a bakery and what they don't realize is that Baking and running a baking store are two different things. When you're when you're baking, the only thing you have to do is bake. When you're running a baking store, actually baking is um, probably the last thing you you do. In fact, you probably in the end hire someone to do the baking because you're caught up with the business of the store. So it's I, I think uh, uh, 
I think really what people need to understand is that they're two different beasts and you can certainly do both uh, very well. And there are many people who do uh, photography as a business because they just simply don't want to do anything else and, and they can't not spend their day with a camera in their hand. But you'd be crazy to go into it thinking that you are only going to be taking photographs and that somehow all of this other stuff is going to take care of itself when in reality you become your own secretary, your own administrator, your own marketer, your own accountant, you know, you become a staff of 20 people and uh, each of those roles takes time and takes, uh, you know, often takes, there's a learning curve. So if you're going to do some of your own marketing, suddenly you have to start learning marketing. And if you're going to do your own accounting, you have to take a course on how to use QuickBooks or, or whatever. So it, what I think is crucial for everyone is that you don't let your, uh, your marketing niche become your creative rut, that uh, you're always pursuing personal projects. You're always doing the work that you love. And when it becomes a matter of taking a gig, first and foremost for the money, uh, even if it's a gig you're not particularly interested in doing, I think that's the first step down a road to becoming very dissatisfied. And you might as well still be working in a cubicle doing a job you don't like. Because frankly, being chained to a cubicle and being chained to a camera, there's there's not much difference. And probably worse, to be chained to that thing you love and begin to resent it. It would probably be better to have a, a nine to five job and come home and have something you love to do at the end of the day rather than be a photographer, work longer hours, and then at the end of the day, resent the, the thing that you started because you loved it so much. Yeah. You mentioned personal, personal projects, which is one of the focuses for this year. Uh, I, I see that you have on your website a personal project, which seems very different from the travel work that you've done, but seems very linked to um, a certain sensibility that exists in all your work. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I, I, are you referring to the to the yoga project? Right, mm-hmm. right. So that that was something I did last year, and that was um, it was a couple. It was a small personal project. It was just something that I was very interested in, primarily because of the people. Um, I haven't done much yoga myself, um, and what I have done has has been pretty disgraceful. But the people that uh, that I photographed were many of them were people that I knew and really respected, and uh, there was something about there was a connection between who they were as people and their practice of yoga that I really wanted to, uh, at least to document. And so we uh, went into the studio for a couple of days and photographed these people. Um, but I'm always doing uh, personal projects of some nature. When I first started this, I, I realized, I don't, I don't know where I came up with this idea, but I realized that if I didn't keep shooting for myself, if I was always shooting for clients, that I would probably run dry. And uh, I just made a commitment that every year I would do one personal project. I would go somewhere like India and or Tunisia. Tunisia was a personal project for me. And photograph simply for myself, not to have a client calling the shots, not to have anything beyond going, reacting, uh, falling in love with a place visually, or, or in the case of Tunisia, you know, not really falling in love and still having to find things that really captured, uh, captured my eye. Uh, because I think that that creative process can sometimes get hijacked when you're in a client relationship and not necessarily in a bad way. You still learn and and you still develop as a photographer, but in order to pursue the stuff that really matters to you, I think you need to set dedicated time aside to do things that are uh, less within the box of a client's constraints and needs. 
So you just go out with your, you know, lately I've just been going out uh, for a couple hours with a film camera, which is the furthest thing from what I normally do. So I go out with a film camera, um, in this case, uh, an old Hasselblad, and I put black and white film in it, and I just go out and shoot because it's everything uh, about it is different than what I shoot for clients. It's it's film and not digital, even the viewfinder inverted. And, and so it's uh, it's one of those things that gets my creative juices going because at the end of the day if i'm not at my creative best for a client um then you know they'll go somewhere else so that that creative stuff is very important to just keep lubricated and and keep a, a sharp edge on it with with the yoga project what were you in did you have any sort of intention of doing anything with it or was it just did you just do it for your own satisfaction in terms of what you wanted to do with 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 a camera it, it was a little of both. My uh, my manager um, has been working closely with a number of organizations uh, in sort of the, the yoga community. And so it just started with a what if, you know, we said, hey, what if we get into the studio and shoot some of these people that I've been wanting to shoot for a while. And between the two of us, we had good relationships with them all. And, and uh, there was in the back of our heads an idea that at some point we might use this personal work as a bit of a promotional piece. Uh, but we had no in- we had no intention of using it that way quite yet. We just thought, Hey, we, we might in the future. So yeah, we just got together with, uh, with a bunch of these people and went into the studio and shot for, for a couple days, but there was no real other than let's shoot some stuff for the yoga community. There was no real, um, plan behind it except to see what happened. And I think one of the, one of the reasons I'm always a big proponent about personal projects is is not so much for the purpose of being able to do something with it, you know, in the end, but oftentimes it sort of rejuvenates you in a way that 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 your typical work, the work that you're always doing, provides you. Like you said, um, having a break from having to to meet the the needs of a client, uh, a personal project really provides you a, a whole lot of freedom. What what did you find that this this project and some of the other personal projects that you've you've done have have developed in you as as a photographer, t- particularly the way that you see and use the camera? Well, when you're shooting with a client, you do have a certain uh, freedom to explore those, but that freedom only goes so far before you have to get back on track. Whereas if you're doing a personal project and you've decided uh, to do it somewhat without constraints, I think the moment you ask what if, you're totally free to pursue it. And that what if may be, you know, the, the answer to that what if may be, well, that's a really bad idea. Uh, but if you do something else that is a good idea, it may have led you down a rabbit trail to three four other very good ideas maybe hey what if we shot this with a i don't know a tilt shift lens and you go off and shoot it and suddenly you discover something in there that's worth further exploration and that's what creativity is all about it's it's that asking what if and then discovering the the answers to that what if and then pursuing those as far as they'll go just to you know again just to see what it looks like and um to experiment and play because that does again return to your client work it it makes you a stronger creative person with uh increased you know we talked about voice earlier uh, to extend the metaphor i think it gives you increased vocal range that the more you play with different tools and techniques and explore different scenarios the more vocal ability to express things so when a client does come to you and say hey what about this you've already potentially explored that in a personal project and you have something to contribute to the discussion is that one of the ways that you sort of keep pushing yourself so that you're not repeating the same images over and over again? Because, you know, over time, you can always fall back on those sort of approaches that you know are reliable, that provide you consistent results. 
is personal projects or maybe other things really important for you to be able to, to do that? Very important. I, I think you mentioned the idea of falling back on you know the familiar, and I think what the personal projects do is they give you a a bigger piece of familiar to fall back upon. If uh, if you're working for a client and things are going uh, not so well, you need to be able to fall back on what you're very good at and very familiar with because you've got a lot more things to think about. So the creative time is a time to you know to expand that uh, that familiar landscape. Um, to, you know, when I am, even when I go out and travel uh, on a workshop or, or for a client, I always give myself a, a small assignment. And it's an assignment that's based around the idea of play. So I bring, for example, a lens baby, or um, I decide, hey, today I'm only going to shoot backlight. And you just, you pursue something. You give yourself one constraint and you just pursue it. Uh, because I think very often people, the idea of personal work or creativity, they get this idea that, oh, I've got to create some huge body of work and, you know, this is my magnum opus. And you get very intimidated by the fact that you've got all these um, expectations that you create for yourself when I think all you have to do is give yourself one little assignment you know oh today I'm going to go out and I'm going to play with panning or motion blur or I'm not going to shoot anything more than a, a 30th of a second or and you just give yourself those little assignments because in reality many of us do not have time to go out and spend three months shooting you know something really specific as a personal project we can't fund it we need to be working um, and some of us just don't have the attention span for something that long. But you do have the attention span for an hour uh, or a whole afternoon spent playing with motion blur and just playing and shooting a lot of garbage and not caring about the product, the result of it, but caring about the process and just playing. And the more you play with the process, the more familiar with it you become. And then, as I said, it becomes part of that that thing that is familiar to you that you can fall back upon when you're working for clients and and even in a less pragmatic way, it's fun. It's fun to rediscover that stuff and uh, to go and play. Because when I first started, it was all about, hey, what does it look like when I do this? And then when you get very concerned about client cares and and the need to make a living, you sometimes forget that, you know, just going out and playing is very important. Yeah. I think one one thing that can easily get lost is we pick up the camera because it's fun. Because it's like playing, just like a kid, and it's so easy to, to get caught up in, in you know, the obsession with the equipment or learning some Photoshop technique or whatever it is, and all of a sudden you find yourself getting lost in, in frustration and drudgery and in a lot of angst over something that really is supposed to be joy-filled, especially considering the fact that you're a professional photographer. How do you maintain that? that spirit of joy was something that you obviously love so much. Well, I think part of it is just being very intentional about pursuing creative proje- uh, projects, uh, pursuing work that you love. If a client calls and throws a bunch of money at you to do something that, frankly, you're just not interested in, you need to have ahead of time decided whether you can afford not to take those. Um, I'm a big advocate of shooting the stuff you love and only shooting the stuff you love. If you've got a... a client that wants you to do something that you just don't want to do you're not interested in it your work is chances are your work is not going to be as good as it could be and 
the thing about shooting work that you don't enjoy is that, you know, if someone says, hey, come shoot a wedding for me and you go and shoot the wedding and two things are going to happen. You're going to screw it up, which is not good for anyone. Uh, or you're going to do a good job and someone's going to refer you and, you know, then you think, oh, I need the money. I'll take the second wedding. And then three people come to you and soon because of your need for the money, um, which is a valid need, but soon you're a wedding photographer, which is not at all what you wanted to do. And it's very hard once you're entrenched in that niche to make a break and say, you know, I'm going to go back to what I wanted to do all along, which was, you know, documentary, you know, stuff in Southeast Asia. Mm. So keeping and it's it is a risk. I'm I'm uh, very clear on on that. The uh, you have to be able to make a decision to not shoot for the money, and some people will find that a very hard balance to achieve. Because frankly, it's you know these are tough economic times. There are people who are really struggling to make a living. So you need to find a way to do both. You need to find a way to shoot the stuff you love, and if necessary, take the stuff on the side to sustain you. But the biggest danger, I think, is allowing uh, your art to be, um, you know, pe- people say, oh, it must be good, a client paid for it, you know, and at the minute, the minute your art is justified by how much someone pays you, uh, that becomes quite a trap, and um, soon you do begin to resent it because you're only doing it for a paycheck. So I would say you just need to strive for some balance and be aware that, that uh, these decisions, they do affect your future in your craft. And if you take too many gigs solely for the money, you will either end up resenting your, your craft or producing work. That's frankly not your best. And then you'll resent your craft. Um, or you'll just fade out and end up back at Starbucks and, uh, you know, and maybe that's okay because then maybe you can just do your, your day job and pick up the camera and enjoy it again. But uh, I think it just takes intentionality. I think you need to just be conscious of the fact that this is a real hazard and always shoot the stuff you love. And I know that's very idealistic, but I'm unabashedly idealistic. So, <laughs> Excellent point. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask a photographer to suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it could be anyone from um, from a legendary photographer to someone someone you've recently discovered. So who would that be for you and why? Oh, am I limited to one? Um, one, yeah. You know who I, <laughs> uh, gosh, you know who I would, I, the first photographer that I absolutely fell in love with, apart from Steve McCurry, um, who I still uh, like and, and respect his, his work, um, but uh, it was uh, a man named Yosef Karsh, and just many people are quite familiar with Karsh. Uh, he was a portrait artist uh, that was based in Ottawa, Canada, which is where I up and he shot uh, black and white formal portraits and now they're they're, i mean they're classic they're iconic they're a little bit dated in many ways but i spent hours pouring over his work and there was something about the quality and the intimacy of his black and white photographs that he was sort of the ansel adams of portrait photographers uh at least in you know that's the space he occupied in my mind and I would suggest if you love photographing people, um, you do need to explore people like Steve McCurry and, and the, the folks that are currently working in that space. But going back and looking at people like Karsh, who were very, uh, they were pioneers in terms of formal portraiture. I think there's no discipline that can't inform another. You know, I, if you're a, a landscape photographer, go and, and look at, you know, fashion photography and really explore your um 
your creative gamut because there's uh, there's something that you can learn from everyone. And I think no matter what you do, Karsh, there was something about his work that really resonated with me as a, a kid. And it was obviously powerful enough that it made me want to do this for, you know, for the rest of my life. So yeah. thank you so much uh, for appearing on the show. I can't thank you enough. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for another episode of The Candid Frame. And by the way, I'm leading a return of the Photocast Network Focus Ring. If you've never heard an episode or if you stopped subscribing to the show, I suggest you check it out and the brand new format. You can find that show at thephotocastnetwork.com. But if you have any questions or comments about this show, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Flickr. Links to each can be found on the blog. Till next time, this is Ibarri and Exparello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.